Welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the wee hours of October 25th, 2023, as always, from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side, which fortunately is not under aerial bombardment. The number of people killed in Gaza has now exceeded 5,000. Israeli airstrikes are intensifying. It seems just about all of Gaza City, in the north of the Strip, is in ruins. Israel is airdropping leaflets, reiterating their evacuation order, and warning that any people who remain in North Gaza will be considered enemy combatants or collaborators thereof when the anticipated land invasion begins. This presumably includes the elderly, the infirm, people who are too sick or injured to move, or simply have no means of transportation with the roads bombed out. And meanwhile, Israel is also extending airstrikes to the south of the Strip, exactly where they are ordering the population of the north to flee to. Humanitarian agencies are repeating urgent calls for a ceasefire and more aid convoys. Only a trickle of the needed aid has been allowed through the Rafah crossing into Gaza by Egyptian authorities. Delivery levels are still nowhere near what they were before the bombing began two weeks ago. And of course, due to the bombing, needs on the ground are exponentially elevated. Water and electricity remain cut off to the Strip. Women and children make up more than 60% of the fatalities, and more than 15,000 people have been injured. And still, Israel continues to play this hideous propaganda game of maintaining that the civilian casualties are mere collateral damage, and it is actually Hamas strongholds that are being targeted, and that the IDF, Israeli Defense Forces, are therefore morally superior to Hamas, which, of course, less hypocritically, explicitly targeted civilians for massacre in its criminal and indefensible murderous incursion into Israel two weeks ago, which left some 1,300 dead. Airstrikes have now spread to the West Bank. On Sunday, the 22nd, a mosque in Jenin refugee camp was struck, with at least two dead, and Israel again claiming it was being used as a hideout by militants. Over the past two weeks, that some 5,000 have been killed in Gaza, some 100 Palestinians have been killed at the hands of Israeli security forces or settlers on the West Bank. And there have also been border skirmishes in southern Lebanon, where Hezbollah has jumped into the fray, portending an internationalization of the war. Among those who see Israel now crossing a genocidal threshold is Israeli-American Holocaust scholar Raz Segal, author of 
Genocide in the Carpathians, 1914 to 1945, which I definitely need to read, immersing myself these days in the World War II history of Ukraine. And he writes in Jewish Currents, October 13th, that the Gaza bombardment and siege constitute a textbook case of genocide, quote-unquote. Segal writes, Israel has been explicit about what it's carrying out in Gaza. Why isn't the world listening? From the text, under international law, the crime of genocide is defined by, quote, the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group as such. As noted in the December 1948 UN Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, in its murderous attack on Gaza, Israel has loudly proclaimed this intent. Israeli Minister of Defense Yoav Gallant declared in no uncertain terms on October 9th, quote, We are imposing a complete siege on Gaza. No electricity, no food, no water, no fuel. Everything is closed. We are fighting human animals, and we will act accordingly. End quote. I am very glad that somebody of the stature of Raz Segal, and himself an Israeli, is calling this out, and I applaud Jewish Currents for having the courage to publish it. Contrast the conspicuous silence of Samantha Power, current director of USAID, and former United States Ambassador to the United Nations under President Obama, who has parlayed her vaunted expertise in the question of genocide into a very prestigious political career. She is famously the author of A Problem from Hell, America and the Age of Genocide. Basic Books, 2002, for which she won a Pulitzer. And the problems with this book are certainly relevant to her current silence. The book is most guilty of sins of omission, and viewing the problem of genocide entirely as a phenomenon carried out by rogue states or enemy states of the U.S. and the West as in Bosnia and Rwanda in the 90s, and viewing American complicity strictly in terms of its failure to intervene to stop genocide. The book never even broaches instances in which genocide is carried out by client states or allies of the U.S. For instance, Palestine where Israel has long been approaching a genocidal threshold and was even in 2002 when the book came out, though that was just before the Second Intifada, 
we certainly saw an escalation, especially in the atrocities carried out at Janine Refugee Camp in April 2002, but also, for instance, Guatemala, where the ruling military clearly crossed the threshold in 1982, carrying out serial massacres, ethnically targeting the Maya indigenous population, initiating some two years that marked the bloodiest period in a long civil war that ultimately left some 200,000 dead and missing, to disgraceful silence from the outside world, and rating not a syllable in Power's book, just saying, a moral and intellectual failing of her book, which says much about the greater moral and intellectual failing of her silence, as the U.S. administration she works for and represents stands behind Israel as it crosses the genocidal threshold and apparently prepares to cleanse the Gaza Strip, or at least the north, of its Palestinian inhabitants. Now, there are some signs that the White House is putting a certain degree of pressure on Israel to at least maintain or increase its pretension of adhering to the laws of war in the Gaza campaign and calibrate its brutality. But this is certainly by no means an exoneration of the U.S. for its complicity in an escalation to genocide. And we can imagine that tactical and geopolitical considerations are foremost in Biden's mind. Most obviously, as we now note for a third consecutive podcast, even if Biden himself is constrained from publicly acknowledging this, how the moral position of Ukraine's resistance to Russian aggression, occupation, and genocide is undermined by the contradiction of its Western backers, such as the U.S., marshalling massive resources in the very same legislation just introduced by Biden on Capitol Hill to assist Israeli aggression, occupation, and genocide. And what has been going on in Ukraine as it has been pushed from the headlines by the carnage in Gaza? A new UN report has found continued evidence of war crimes and human rights violations committed by Russian forces, including torture, rape, and the deportation of children for which Vladimir Putin now faces war crimes charges before the International Criminal Court at The Hague. Apparently, the practice nonetheless continues. The report, published October 20th by the Independent International Commission of Inquiry on Ukraine, documents, quoting from the UN press release, indiscriminate attacks with explosive weapons resulting in deaths, injuries, and the destruction and damage of civilian objects, quote-unquote, objects being a rather antiseptic term for homes, apartment buildings, hospitals, etc. 
within hours of the Israeli airstrike in Jenin, October 22nd, a Russian missile hit a mail distribution center in the eastern Ukraine city of Kharkiv, killing at least six postal workers. Nonetheless, Russian President Vladimir Putin on October 20th, the same day the UN report was released, said civilian casualties from an Israeli ground assault in Gaza would be, quote, absolutely unacceptable, end quote. Can you believe this shit? The author of a year and a half of mass aerial terror in Ukraine and eight years of mass aerial terror in Syria the man whose warplanes and missiles destroyed Aleppo and Mariupol makes a facile play for Arab sympathy. Repulsive. But Bibi and Biden are sure playing into his hands. And, as I inevitably must emphasize, some elements of the so-called anti-imperialist left in the West are also playing right along with them. I note with consternation a piece that appears in Truth Out, October 18th, entitled, truthfully enough, Media's Selective Moral Outrage Manufactures Consent for Palestinian Genocide. But, from the text, in a viral post on X, meaning Twitter, former Greek finance minister Yanis Yarufakis ignited an intense debate about selective condemnation and moral outrage surrounding Israel's massive bombardment of Gaza, which the Palestinian envoy to the United Nations described as nothing less than genocidal, quote-unquote, Varoufakis stated, quote, within a quote, truth out text, quoting Varoufakis's tweet, I condemn every killing with equal passion. What I refuse to do is to join the ritualistic condemnation of one side, whose very purpose is to take the side of a state cynically and brutally imposing apartheid over many decades. This is no different to 1981, when as anti-apartheid demonstrators in London, we were being pushed by the British media to condemn the African National Congress for necklacing, a horrible practice indeed, a condemnation sought by those who sought to undermine the anti-apartheid struggle at a time, lest we forget, Nelson Mandela was branded by the U.S., U.K., and Israeli governments as a terrorist, end quote. Necklacing, of course, refers to the practice by some ANC supporters at the time of killing perceived traitors and informants by placing a flaming tire around their necks. However, anyone, conversely, protesting Israel's escalation to genocide in Gaza while remaining silent on Putin's escalation to genocide in Ukraine is equally guilty of this selective moral outrage. And this, it seems, would include 
Yanis Yarofakis. Does Yarofakis condemn every killing with equal passion, as he states? I note an interesting but disturbing piece in the venerable British anarchist newspaper, Freedom News, back on March 10th of this year. Russian and Ukrainian activists silenced at Greek Mera 25 party event. Mera 25 is the European Realistic Disobedience Front, which is aligned with a transnational entity called the Democracy in Europe Movement 2025, or DM25, which appears to be espousing a vague populism of the type I am generally suspicious of. It is unclear if they are calling for abolition or reform of the EU, but they are certainly opposed to it as currently constituted, and not without reason, to say the least. The Freedom News piece concerns Russian activist Artem Temirov and his unnamed wife, who is apparently Ukrainian and the couple attended a Mira 25 panel on the Ukraine war in Athens, in which Varoufakis was among the featured speakers. Temerov writes in the first person, from the text, with my interjections added, Yanis Varoufakis started by referring to his own article, published in the first days of the war, in which he stated that the West must end the war within the first week. He argued that, quote, Moscow and Washington must come to an agreement, unquote. I interject, this is calling for the great powers to negotiate over the heads of the Ukrainians, just like Hitler and Chamberlain negotiated over the heads of the Czechoslovakians in 1938 to famously disastrous results. Continuing, Putin must withdraw troops to the borders that existed before February 24th, 2022. I interject. Well, thank you, but note that he did not say the borders which existed before April 2014, when Crimea was illegally annexed. Continuing. In turn, Biden must guarantee Putin that Ukraine will remain a neutral territory and that new European countries will not become NATO members. I interject, yeah, that would be a fine idea if Putin were not threatening those countries with invasion, which certainly complicates things, shall we say. Continuing, during the Q&A session of the event, I stood up, meaning the Russian activist telling the story, Artem Temerov, to express my disagreement with the speaker's positions. I started with an important disclaimer, saying that I am from Russia. I expressed my belief that everything they said was bullshit, and that it seemed to me they were not well informed about the situation in Russia or Ukraine. I suggested that their sources of information were limited. After this, Yanis Varoufakis called me a fascist and they turned off my microphone. My wife, the only Ukrainian citizen in the hall, and I were forcibly removed from the event without being allowed to say another word. I was surprised that there was so much resistance to hearing from two refugees 
from the countries that the previous two hours of discussion were focused on. On the video, it's very clear to see my willingness to apologize and tone down my emotions, but we were roughly escorted out of the room. And Yanis Varoufakis continued to shout after me that I was a fascist. End quote. Right. You're a fascist for opposing fascism. More fascist pseudo-anti-fascism. The same, by the way, now exhibited by Israel, whose foreign minister Eli Cohen said just today, October 24th, that they are fighting, quote, the new Nazis, end quote, in Gaza. This in rejecting a call from UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres for a proportionate response. Exactly what Putin has been saying about Ukraine, practically verbatim. This is what you're legitimizing, Yanis Varoufakis. No thanks. And frustratingly, I found a really good statement about Gaza on the website of Diem25, the Democracy in Europe Movement 2025, with which Varoufakis is affiliated, entitled End the Siege on Gaza, End Israeli Apartheid. I will read it. It is short, but powerful. From the text, For far too long, the Palestinian people have been subjected to apartheid military occupation and dehumanization. A new, darker chapter is looming on the horizon. Quote, no electricity, no food, no water, no fuel, everything will be closed. We are fighting against human animals and we are acting accordingly, end quote, is how Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant describes the new measures. We are entering dangerous territory, potentially one of genocide, as described by the Genocide Convention through, quote, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, end quote. This is a serious escalation, perhaps even eclipsing Israeli apartheid, as detailed by Human Rights Watch, Betzalem, the foremost Israeli human rights group, and Amnesty International. Our Western leaders, however, are continuously backing the oppressor, condoning crimes against humanity conducted by Israel and denying the right to resist for the Palestinians. The United Nations, meanwhile, has been slow to react and unable to move beyond emergency sessions. And amid ongoing bombardment, over 338,000 people have been displaced within Gaza, far more than that now. And more than 1 million people have been given 24 hours notice by Israel to leave North Gaza. In the face of such escalation and violence, the potential for mass deaths, we urgently demand an immediate ceasefire and drawdown of Israeli troops around Gaza, the resumption of supply of electricity, water, food, and humanitarian goods into Gaza, the opening of humanitarian corridors, and evacuation routes for residents of Gaza as mandated by international law, our long-term vision. We call for the creation of a parallel peace process under the auspices of the United Nations for a just resolution 
to the wars in Gaza as well as in Ukraine, consistent with DiEM25's internationalist, humanist principles of non-discrimination, equality before the law, diversity, and freedom of movement, we believe that the only long-term settlement requires progressives from both sides, Israelis and Palestinians, to work together toward a single, democratic, secular state in the land of historic Palestine for Jews and Palestinians. End quote. Pretty damn good. Alas, on their website, I also found this, a link to a page on the Common Dreams site from last May 2022. Athens Declaration calls for end to Ukraine war and creation of lasting peace. Put forth by international progressive leaders calling the world to sanity, quote-unquote. The document envisions a global security framework committed to de-escalating tensions in the world. The Athens Declaration was unveiled at a press conference in the Greek capital by British Member of Parliament and former Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn and former Greek Finance Minister and leader of the Mira 25 party, Yanis Varoufakis. The statement is essentially calling, my paraphrase, for um, an arms cutoff to Ukraine and a bogus peace that surrenders Ukrainian territory to Russia, which means, let us recall, betraying the people who live there to permanent Russian occupation and probable genocide. The peace avoids squaring with these realities, of course. It argues against a Ukrainian military victory, quote-unquote, and for a negotiated settlement, quote-unquote, not explicitly saying that this means surrender of Ukrainian territory to Russia, which it does, and not explicitly saying that this means the great powers negotiating over the heads of Ukraine, which it does. Now, maybe this was somewhat more forgivable in May of 2022, before Russia declared withdrawal from illegally annexed territory to be off the table. But it was already after evidence of massacres of the civilian population in Russian-occupied territory had started to emerge, most notoriously at Buka, although there have been many others since. So, a soft-sell pro-Russian position. And the DM25 website still links to it, and the Common Dream website still displays it as if it were still relevant in spite of the illegal annexations and massacres. We noted in our podcast of November 6, 2022, in our series entitled Against Pseudo-Pacifist War Propaganda, Jeremy Corbyn's Problematic Stance on Ukraine. So listen to that one if you want to get deeper into that. So, you know, it really does get lonely. And as a final example of this um, ironic symmetry, I note an account from a website called The Left Berlin, writing that on September 13th of this year, so before the outbreak of the current crisis, 
There was a pro-Israel public meeting at a theater in the German capital, sponsored by a municipal entity, the Berlin Office for Political Education, entitled The Myth of Israel, a reference to the myth, quote-unquote, that Israel is an apartheid state, which it is. And a Jewish-Israeli former IDF soldier, identified only as Yuval, was, quote, removed from the meeting room after he expressed criticism of the meeting, which offensively declared the apartheid status of Israel as a myth. He said that as a soldier, he had seen apartheid with his own eyes. Although he did not put up a fight, Yuval was hit to the ground, presumably by the event's security detail, and one of his ribs was broken. And, quote, I could find no other accounts about this. I appeal to any listeners in Germany with more information to be in touch. I take some heart in the fact that the dissident who was ejected at the pro-Russian event in Athens was himself Russian, and the dissident who was ejected and badly roughed up, apparently, at the pro-Israel event in Berlin, was himself Israeli. That's very encouraging. More of this, that is, more of the dissent, not the silencing and repression of dissidents, obviously. Meanwhile, in some very disconcerting news this week, Unknown assailants targeted a Berlin synagogue with Molotov cocktails on October 18th, while that same day, rioters in Tunisia burned down the country's historic El Hama synagogue. There was no significant property damage at the Kalal Adas Jisroyel synagogue in Berlin, but El Hama in the Tunisian city of Gabes, was effectively destroyed. Although El Hama no longer functioned as a house of worship, it still held major symbolic significance for Tunisian Jews, who are still shaken from a May shooting at the Griba synagogue in Jerba, the oldest in Africa. Last week, we had to note the horrific case of Wadea El Fayume, the six-year-old boy who was stabbed to death in his home in suburban Chicago on October 14th, clearly targeted because he was a Palestinian. This week, we must note that Samantha Wohl, president of the Isaac Agri Downtown Synagogue in Detroit, was found dead with multiple stab wounds outside her home October 21st, exactly a week after the killing of Wadea El Fayume in Chicago. Detroit police caution against speculation on a motive in the synagogue president's murder, but such speculation is obviously inevitable, given what is going on in the world and the proliferation of inflammatory propaganda on social media. Just yesterday, October 23rd, this headline from the JTA, Jewish Telegraphic Agency, violence and gunfire break out 
at dueling pro-Israel and pro-Palestinian rallies in Skokie, Illinois. Witnesses said a man driving a car covered in Israeli flags confronted a group of pro-Palestinian protesters when that group surrounded the man. He drew a gun and fired a shot into the air. Nobody was injured. Video of the event from the Chicago Sun-Times shows that police arrested the man who was pinned to the ground, handcuffed, and led away. The police later said he was released and has not been charged with a crime. So, I noted last week how some of the dueling demos here in New York have been approaching the point of violence, with City Council member Ina Vernikov actually bringing a pistol to a rally in Brooklyn, where she joined the pro-Israel contingent confronting the pro-Palestinian demonstrators. Well, in Skokie, it actually reached the point of gunfire. The European Commission this week issued formal requests for information to Meta and TikTok, the former being the corporate parent of Facebook, as we know, concerning their compliance, or lack thereof, with the European Union's Digital Services Act, which requires these platforms to take proactive measures to combat harmful posts and disinformation, particularly in light of the Israel-Hamas conflict. Of course, most of the EU states are standing behind Israel, which raises the inherent dilemma of social media. Is disinformation and inflammatory propaganda on these platforms a serious problem? Fuck yes. Do we trust the EU or any other governmental authority to be an even-handed arbiter? Fuck no. A difficult dilemma, which I am doing my level best to address by cutting through the BS on both sides and hopefully providing some analytical clarity with the very small platform available to me. Okay, last week I noted that, as was all too predictable, we actually lost a Patreon subscriber over the previous week's podcast on, of course, this same theme. This constitutes the third in a series, and I honestly don't know if I lost that Patreon supporter for refusing to support Israel or Hamas, which is itself very telling. We were trying to get from 58 to 60, and instead it went down to 57. Well, happily, this week we got back up to 59, and both of those were at our new tier of major rant enabler for $5 per weekly podcast. Tier 1 is $1 per weekly podcast. Tier 2 is $2 per weekly podcast. And Tier 3, major rant enabler for $5 per weekly podcast. And I stated on that last podcast that, um, $5 is about what you'd spend on a Starbucks latte, including tip. And if you can afford to buy a Starbucks latte once a week, and you're listening to the Counter Vortex podcast, 
you can afford to be a major rant enabler. Well, I have been informed by someone who actually buys lattes at Starbucks that it is more like double that, closer to $10, which really blows my mind. I would have assumed it was like four plus a dollar for tip, but no, apparently it's more like 10, not including tip. So tell you what, listeners, in all seriousness, I get that money can be tight. And if you're a skin flint like me, who makes his own Cafe Bostello at home with a French press, okay, you can listen to the Counter Vortex for free. And you can contribute to our effort by spreading the word about it, sharing our links on social media and such. But if you're buying lattes at Starbucks once a week or more, I appeal to you to become a major rant enabler. You can afford the five bucks a week, and we need it to keep going at this level of activity in these very desperate times. Patreon.com slash CounterVortex. This has been Bill Weinberg with the CounterVortex. Check us out online at CounterVortex.org. Support us on Patreon. Join the Counter Vortex. Join the Resistance. And rant on you next time.